Welcome to Without the Footnotes with me, your host, Esther Rini. On this week's episode, I'll be talking about the Rwandan genocide. Hi friends and welcome to season two, episode five of Without the Footnotes, not your typical Holocaust lecture. This is the series where I will, each week I'll be going over, giving an overview of different genocides that have occurred kind of in the last hundred years. And this week I'm going to be focusing on the Rwandan genocide that happened in 1994. Some of of you listeners might even remember this happening in real time. It's perhaps the first one. If you're I don't know, a millennial or whatever, uh, Gen Z, you are, this one has occurred in your living memory, I assume. I don't know. I don't know how old my listeners are, listeners are but it's definitely the one that I remember um, growing up. So yeah, that will be the focus for this week. I hope everyone is doing good. I don't have much to report, I don't think. Um, I can't really remember what's happened to me in the last week between... <laughs> Uh, the last episode that I did on the Cambodian genocide and this one. Um, I think the only time marker that I've had was that it was Valentine's Day yesterday. I hope you all had a sweet one, whether you celebrate it or not. um, Sometimes it's nice just to have these markers, especially during the pandemic, because most of the time it can probably feel like time is both passing and it isn't. So yeah, I hope you had a good one if you did anything to celebrate it spreading love always um yeah so I'm just gonna crack on with this week's episode which as I said is about the Rwandan genocide so let's go Okay, so if everyone's ready, here we go. So the Rwandan genocide occurred in 1994 and between the 7th of April and the 15th of July of that year, so in just 100 days, roughly 800 Tutsis and moderate Hutus were slaughtered by ethnically Hutu extremists. So I'm just going to break down what it meant to be classified as Hutu and Tutsi within Rwanda prior to this genocide. So in Rwanda was under colonial the colonial rule of Germany from around 1887 up until 1917, where after that, at that point, Belgium took over. And Rwanda had around 18 clans that were defined along kinship lines. So like family, marriages, close relationships, that kind of thing. So they didn't define themselves through ethnicity. And the Hutu and Tutsi were used in reference, labels were used in reference to individuals and could be based on your lineage. And you'd be treated differently based on whether you were a Hutu or a Tutsi, but they shared the same culture, the same customs and the same languages, things like that. So when Germany became the ruling power, they decided to rule through a monarchy favouring people who were Tutsi and believing that they were racially superior. So that's where the racial lines come in. And when the Belgians took over, they took a more divisive approach and divided the population into three ethnic groups, which were Hutu, and they were around 85% of the population, Tutsi, who are around 15%, 
and the Twa who were around 1%. And the Tutsis remained the supreme ethnicity according to um, this system. And although before people could become Tutsi, as I said, before this identity through kin- kinship, so you could be Hutu and then um, through your relationships with other people then be classified as a Tutsi. So it had nothing to do with ethnically who you were. But now, w- once this classification came in, it became impossible to move between groups. And the reason for this is because the Belgians issued identity cards so that they could basically track the population and have everybody belong to a certain group. And on these identity cards, it stated how they ethnically defined you, either as a Hutu or as a Tutsi. So it's because of this division and categorization of people that the genocide was able to be perpetrated in 1994. And there was basis for anti-Tutsi propaganda and an easy way to identify people. So without this kind of reclassification of the clans in Rwanda, um, a lot a lot of like the knock-on effect of, of the divide between the two groups just wouldn't have happened it wasn't there before and because of this uh, division over the decades this resulted in the Hutu power movement and this movement would push would push an anti-Tutsi agenda they established and circulated a magazine that became popular nationwide spreading their anti-Tutsi propaganda which included the Hutu 10 commandments which I'm going to read for you now so this is a quote Every Hutu should know that a Tutsi woman, whoever she is, works for the interests of her Tutsi ethnic group. As a result, we shall consider a traitor any Hutu who marries a Tutsi woman, employs a Tutsi woman as a concubine, employs a Tutsi woman as a secretary or takes her under protection. That was the first commandment. Second, every Hutu should know that our Hutu daughters are more suitable and conscientious in their role as women, wife and mother of the family. Are they not beautiful, good secretaries and more honest? Three, Hutu women be vigilant and try to bring your husbands, brothers and sons back to reason. Four, every Hutu should know that every Tutsi is dishonest in business. His only aim is the supremacy of his ethnic group. As a result, any Hutu who does the following is a traitor, makes a partnership with Tutsi in business, invests his money or the government's money in a Tutsi enterprise, lends or borrows money from a Tutsi, gives favours to Tutsi in business, obtaining important licenses, bank loans, construction sites, public markets, etc. Number five, all strategic positions, political, administrative, economic, military and security should be entrusted only to Hutu. Number six, the education sector, schools, pupils, students, teachers must be majority Hutu. Number seven, the Rwandan armed forces should be exclusively Hutu. The experience of the October 1990 war has taught us a lesson. No member of the military shall marry a Tutsi. Number eight, the Hutu should stop having mercy on the Tutsi. Number nine, the Hutu, wherever they are, must have unity and solidarity and be concerned with the fate of their Hutu brothers. The Hutu inside and outside Rwanda must constantly look for friends and allies for the Hutu cause, starting with their Hutu brothers. They must constantly counteract Tutsi propaganda. 
the Hutu must be firm and vigilant against their common Tutsi enemy. And finally, number 10, the social revolution of 1959, the referendum of 1961, and the Hutu ideology must be taught to every Hutu at every level. Every Hutu must spread this ideology widely. Any Hutu who persecutes his brother his brother Hutu for having read, spread and taught this ideology is a traitor. So with those 10, com- 10 Hutu commandments, we can really see that this, these um, Hutu hardliners are really pushing for Hutus to be superior to Tutsis. And this power movement by 1993 was the third major political force in Rwanda and radical youth militias began to emerge, including the Interior Hamway, which would be alongside civilians responsible for the eventual genocide. So I'm not sure how many of you listening remember this genocide happening, but I distinctly remember seeing this being reported on the news. And to this day, thanks to my photographic memory, still have visions of bodies lying on the roadside and mobs of people with machetes and clubs roaming around. And I think this genocide was particularly brutal because the attacks were carried out very, very quickly and intimately, whilst the whole world just stood back and basically watched, even to the extent that the UN inside Rwanda at the time was given orders not to intervene and protect civilians that they knew once their presence was gone, they would be left to the mercy of the attacking militias. So on the 11th of January, three months before the genocide started, General Romeo Dallaire, commander of the United Nations Assistance Mission for Rwanda, sent a fax to the UN headquarters in the US warning them that a genocide was being planned and asked that weapons caches that were known that were known to them, um, they asked for permission to raid them and to essentially disarm um, these militias before any violence could start. And his request was denied. Also, unlike any other genocide, this one unfolded right in front of international journalists, radio broadcasters, TV and news reporters who were inside Rwanda at the time. With So those people would literally report in real time to the rest of the world the genocide as it was happening. And the UN was also present for the duration of the genocide. And France, Belgium and the US refused to intervene. And when the UN did eventually agree to send in extra troops, having recognised that genocidal acts were occurring or finally like officially saying that it was happening, they continued to argue between themselves. So the UN and the US continued to argue over the costs of the intervention to the point where the genocide ended and the intervention never happened. And this, I think, is very important to know about this genocide because the countries with the power to intervene chose sovereignty over a genocide that was unraveling or being perpetrated before their eyes. So whereas with the Holocaust, a lot of countries gave the excuse that they didn't know it was happening or they didn't have the resources or anything to be able to go in and do anything, this was happening in real time. The president of the United States at the time was Bill Clinton. They knew about it and they still decided, they still didn't act with the swiftness that was needed, even when they had troops on the ground in the form of UN peacekeeping. And it's a very, I mean, I find 
the question of like military or humanitarian intervention in times of like mass atrocity very very interesting because I always see it from the perspective of the civilian or the person who's who is suffering and I understand it that if you have the means especially if you have something like the UN then you should ultimately be protecting people rather than arguing the intricacies of sovereignty and how much it would cost to send people in and there's also a lot of controversial stuff that has been said around it um particularly with questions of whose life is more valuable is it worth sending was it worth sending american troops in to save people of a country that ultimately has nothing to do with them and the potential that americans could lose lives also bill clinton after the fact kind of flew over to rwanda touched down in the airport got out the plane and just went yes we're sorry and then just kind of really didn't do anything like didn't take any kind of responsibility of like not of knowing about it and just not helping anyway so um if you are interested in that kind of stuff I would highly recommend reading up on it because the fact that somebody sent a fax to directly to the UN saying that they think a genocide is going to happen and then it pretty much immediately happens a few months after is quite a unique situation especially when we are thinking about prevention and what we can do to protect people so I'm just going to go now a little bit into what happened so I will briefly mention that there was a civil war in Rwanda prior to the genocide happening meaning that there was a lot of unrest within the country at the time building up to this the Hutu power movement had already drafted it lists its lists of traitors and had created a radio station which ended up being really important for the perpetration of the genocide due to its racist propaganda and direct communication with the general public across the country and the movement had also grown the militia the militia groups the inter hamway those who stand together that's what that means and the Impuzamugambi, sorry I'm reading that, it's not the easiest, which means those who have the same goal. And they had grown these militia groups into the tens of thousands, so like tens of thousands of people were part of these groups. And they'd also built up their munitions and even armed civilians with weapons, so building up to carrying this out. So on the 6th of April in 1994, the then Hutu president of Rwanda and the then president of Burundi were in a plane that was shot down, resulting in everybody on board being killed. So the Hutu president is now dead and the Hutu extremists used this um, and immediately blamed the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the RFP, which was the Tutsi rebel group. And the following day, they went into action, handing out lists of top military and political leaders, along with their families, who should be immediately killed. And this was to ensure that nobody took over and took control of the government due to the president now being dead. They then erected checkpoints across the country so that everyone carrying an ID card could be identified. And if they were Tutsi, they would be killed, basically. And Hutu civilians were encouraged to weed out the cockroaches. That was what they called Tutsis, were cockroaches. 
and to arm themselves, usually with machetes, clubs or other blunt objects and rape and were encouraged to rape, injure and kill other Tutsi people. And the list of people to be killed would be read on the radio each day. And it wasn't also just Tutsi that that were killed. It would also be moderate Hutus. So if we think about the Ten Commandments again, Ten Hutu Commandments, anybody who was like a Tutsi sympathiser in their eyes could also be a target and could also be killed. So what would happen is groups of Tutsi and people believed to be moderate Hutu who feared they would also be targeted, would often try and find try to find sanctuary in churches or schools. Um, but these sites would often become places of massacres, so mass killings, with one such massacre taking place at the Murambi Technical School, where around 45,000 people perished after being lured there under claims that the French forces would protect them. So if you think about it, it would have been absolute chaos some people fled the country altogether and became refugees other people would try to um, flee to places of safety because they knew that they were going to be targets and even to the extent where they would be told that they would find sanctuary and they would get there and it would just be a mass killing and thousands of people were killed in their homes and in the streets and women were systematically raped neighbors would kill neighbors even to the extent that family members may kill other family members. Um, and this went on for 100 days until eventually the Rwandan Patriotic Front, who were backed by the Ugandan army, seized control of the capital, Kigali, ultimately putting a stop to the killing. So if, if they hadn't have come in and um, taken over from the Hutu extremists, who knows how long this genocide would have carried on for. But over that 100 days, almost a million people were murdered. So post-genocide, Rwanda had a really interesting truth and reconciliation uh, process where for about a decade, um, people were tried in communal courts. And these community courts were set up to clear the backlog of cases against perpetrators of the genocide as Simply, there were so many people across the country who were involved in these killings that it wasn't just a case of the official organisers being prosecuted for this crime. It went down to into the communities because post-genocide, everybody had to live with each other, but basically everybody could point out someone who had murdered somebody else. And these courts were held across the country and the accused would face their communities directly and they would give evidence so the people in the community would give evidence against the accused of how the genocide occurred what they did and I think even to the extent of how they feel they should be punished for the crime Um, and it's thought that around two million people went through this system with about 65 percent being convicted of perpetrating the genocide so if you want to know more about that it's quite a controversial approach um, to truth and reconciliation considering there was no legal training for this this really was community justice as it were Um, I would urge you to look up these courts um, 
yeah maybe if you want to 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 read a bit about them because I think when it comes to genocide and also like if you think how many people usually have to be involved for so many people to be killed so quickly how as a crime how you kind of bring that to justice and reconcile your community and move forward is important because we have a lot a lot of communities who need to go through that or or need to see justice happen in order to be able to rebuild and reconcile and move on from it so yep I would advise to to look that up if you have the time or interested in diving a bit deeper into the Rwandan genocide um but that basically is an overview of what happened so in 1994 between April and July 100 days of killing happened where around 800,000 Tutsi and moderate Hutus were murdered. Now I do have a recommended reading for this week because I just find the case of Rwanda so interesting in terms of the perpetration of the genocide and the reconciliation process sorry afterwards and the book itself is called the key to my neighbor's house seeking justice in bosnia and rwanda and next week i will actually cover what happened in bosnia and this book is by elizabeth neufer and i just read the blurb for you so Examining competing notions of justice in Bosnia and Rwanda, award-winning Boston Globe correspondent Elizabeth Neufer convinces readers that crimes against humanity cannot be resolved by talk of forgiveness or through the more common recourse to forgetfulness. As genocidal warfare engulfed the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, the international community acted too late to prevent unconscionable violations of human rights in both countries. As these states now attempt to reconstruct their national identities, the surviving victims of genocide struggle to come to terms with a world unhinged. Interviewing victims and aggressors, war orphans and war criminals, Serbian militiamen and NATO commanders, Neufer explores the extent to which genocide erodes a nation's social and political environment, just as it destroys the individual lives of the aggressor's perceived enemies. She argues persuasively that only by achieving justice for these people can domestic and international organisations hope to achieve lasting peace in regions destroyed by fratricidal warfare. Sorry, that word is a new word for me. Um, So if you are interested in that, I would recommend to read that book. Um, Also, if you... Last week I gave some um, resources on reading personal testimony so eyewitness testimony I want to do that again this week um because I think I do think personal stories are really important so if you go to the United States Holocaust Memorial Memorial Museum website they have eyewitness testimony from Rwanda from a multitude of perspectives I will put the link in the I will put the link in whatever it is you know on the episode so that you can have a look at that but you can also just google it and it's it's very easy to find and this week also I don't know if many of you maybe you do know the artist Strome and his father was actually killed in the Rwandan genocide he was Tutsi and he was visiting family um just happened to be visiting family at the time because Strome is actually from Belgium um visiting family at the time and just 
wrong place, wrong time to be there. And he was murdered during the genocide for being Tootsie. And Strome actually has a song called Papa Ute, which you can find on Spotify or I guess Apple Music, wherever you get your music. And I just think a different way to connect with real people and the the real lived experiences what what they experienced just because they weren't a victim themselves but to have a family member as a victim and then that's a that's something that they carry with them for the rest of their life and I do think it is something that we should be connecting to and not just always confine it kind of to history and just knowing about it but actually kind of normalizing more that these people these when these mass atrocities happen people who have a connection to it or who have experienced it could be in your life somehow but you just don't know that that has happened to them so I just think that's a really interesting way to connect through music or an artist and to know that they're what their personal history is um so yeah that's that's the song I'll also put that in the show notes and with that being said I think that is everything for this week I We'll be back again next week with an episode on Bosnia. Um, So if you do end up getting the book, then you'll be quite nicely set up for the episode that is also coming on that. And yeah, I wish everybody a great week and I shall catch you next time. Ciao.